Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Still in our favorite month of the year. October. October. I love you. Yes, Halloween season. And so we have an episode that I know a lot of people have requested, but the only person I wrote down was Betty. So thank you, Betty, and everyone that I forgot to write down in addition to Betty. It is a topic that was written about in the 12th and 13th centuries as a factual thing that really happened. But some people today classify it more as folklore, and it is the green children of Woolpit who made a really eerie appearance in Suffolk, England in the 12th century. We accidentally have a little theme of, like, odd happenings in England at the beginning of this Halloween season. (laughs) (laughs) We're kicking off with weird English stuff, apparently. Mm -hmm. And by today's standards, the village of Woolpit is quite small, with a population of only about 2,000 people. Traveling by car, it's a couple of hours northeast of London. That's about 36 miles or 58 kilometers east of Cambridge. And in the 12th century, the area was not exactly bustling, but it was more densely populated than much of rural England, and it was a thriving agricultural center. So according to the story, one day in Woolpit, two children, a boy and a girl, emerged from a series of pits that were used for trapping wolves. These these wolf pits... And not the fabric of wool are where Woolpit gets its name. It's named after wolf pits. There are two chronicles of this event and what happened after these two children appeared. One is by Ralph Abbott of Cogshall, who wrote his explanation of what happened as part of the Chronicon Anglicanum. And the other is by William of Newburgh and the Historia Rerum Anglicarum, or the History of English Affairs. And both men wrote these accounts in Latin. A translation of William's version by Joseph Stevenson is part of a truly colossal set of volumes called The Church Historians of England, which was published in 1853 and is available online at archive.org if you want to check it out. Stevenson translated Ralph's version too, but we couldn't find that part of the Chronicon Anglicanum in English online. So instead of subjecting everyone to Ralph's Latin shoved through Google Translate, which is a hilarious activity if you ever want to oh, want to get some comedy in your life, <laughs> uh, we're going to read Stevenson's translation of William's version. I did indeed shove Ralph's Latin version through Google Translate, uh, and that was my amusement for a good chunk of afternoon. Before we get to William's version of this story, though, I want to have a brief digression about Joseph Stevenson because he is a character. He was the son of a surgeon, but he also helped his uncle out in his job as a smuggler in his youth. He was not particularly a good student either. Uh, While he was enrolled at a grammar school that was attached to Durham Cathedral, for some reason he was keeping a loaded pistol among his possessions, which went off while being handled by a servant. And according to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, it had, quote, dramatic, although not grave, consequences. I feel like a tea set must have been destroyed. (laughs) (laughs) And other things as well. It gave no detail, but it makes it sound like, fortunately, no one was harmed in this accidental discharge of a firearm, but there was some dramatic incident. (laughs) 
And in spite of this checkered background, Stevenson wound up working at the British Museum. He married and he had two children, and then he changed courses to join the clergy after he was traumatized by the death of his brother. He became a priest after the death of his wife. So where we come around to these monumental volumes of translated uh, works of history, he turned out to really have a knack for translating and editing historical documents. He did a lot of work for the Historical Manuscripts Commission. He put together a bunch of different gigantic collections of historical documents for various different clubs and historical societies. These ranged from four to eight volumes in length. Some of them were these gargantuan editions of old religious and secular histories, and this was just his thing. Apparently, he was also extremely personable and generous as well. So this is the guy that did the translation of the thing that we are about to read. Yeah, worthy of a a little mini-biography there for sure. Uh, And back to the story. In Stevenson's translation, William begins his account by saying that it doesn't seem right to skip over the story of the green children, but at the same time, he had some doubts about the matter. It seemed both ridiculous and mysterious, but at the same time, he had heard about it from so many people, all of them very respectable and competent, that he was, quote, compelled to believe. I feel like this is a 12th century version of the X-Files. <laughs> poster. <laughs> I know well it's also a great that couching that happens for spooky stories yeah. of like I know this is ridiculous but there are enough reasonable people that believe it that there must be truth in it. Yes. So we are going to read his whole account up because I love it and I want to share it with all of you. And it's a bit long so we are going to take turns as we recently did when we talked about uh the devil's hoof prints. We took turns on a, a rather lengthy passage. That's what we're going to do again today. So he He got into the story saying, In East Anglia, there is a village distant, as it is said, four or five miles from the noble monastery of the blessed king and martyr Edmund. Near this place are seen some very ancient cavities called wolf pits, that in English, pits for wolves, and which give their name to the adjacent village. During harvest, while the reapers were employed in gathering the produce of the fields, two children, a boy and a girl, completely green in their persons and clad in garments of a strange color and unknown materials, emerged from these excavations. While wandering through the fields in astonishment, they were seized by the reapers and conducted to the village, and many persons coming to see so novel a sight, they were kept some days without food. But when they were nearly exhausted with hunger and yet could relish no species of support which was offered to them, it happened that some beans were brought in from the field, which they immediately seized with avidity and examined the stalk for the pulse. But not finding it in the hollow of the stalk, they wept bitterly. Upon this, one of the bystanders taking the beans from the pods offered them to the children who seized them directly and ate them with pleasure." This next sentence is my favorite sentence in the entire thing. By this food, they were supported for many months until they learned the use of bread. (laughs) At length, by degrees, they changed their original color through the natural effect of our food and became like ourselves and also learned our language. It seemed fitting to certain discreet persons that they should receive the sacrament of baptism, which was administered accordingly. The boy, who appeared to be the younger, surviving his baptism but a little time, died prematurely. 
His sister, however, continued in good health and differed not in the least from the women of our own country. Afterwards, as it is reported, she was married at Lynn and was living a few years since, at least so they say. Moreover, after they had acquired our language on being asked who and whence they were, they are said to have replied, we are inhabitants of the land of St. Martin, who was regarded with peculiar veneration in the country which gave us birth. Being further asked where that land was and how they came thence hither, they answered, we are ignorant of both these circumstances, and we only remember this, that on a certain day when we were feeding our father's flocks in the fields, we heard a great sound, such as we are now accustomed to hear at St. Edmund's, when the bells are chiming. And whilst listening to the sound in admiration, we became on a sudden, as it were, entranced and found ourselves among you in the fields where you were reaping." Being questioned whether in that land they believed in Christ or whether the sun arose, they replied that the country was Christian and possessed churches. But, said they, quote, the sun does not rise upon our countrymen. Our land is little cheered by its beams. We are contented with that twilight, which among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset. Moreover, a certain luminous country is seen not far distant from ours and divided from it by a very considerable river. These and many other matters too numerous to particularize, they are said to have recounted to curious inquirers. Let everyone say as he pleases and reason on such matters according to his abilities. I feel no regret at having recorded an event so prodigious and miraculous." So that's the story. I know, obviously, they were asked a whole lot of other questions, but it tickles me that the ones that he was compelled to write down here were, do you believe in Christ? And also, does the sun exist there? Uh, yeah, maybe they thought they were from another planet or that, realm. That's going to come up. Yeah. Uh, so They're from gonna, Saturn, clearly. Obviously. We're going to take a quick break before we get into some of the historical elements that uh, relate to this story. Overall, Williams and Ralph's versions of what happened with these green children are consistent with each other, although Williams is a little bit longer and it has a few more details. Both agree that the children were taken to the home of Lord Richard de Calne, who lived in Wykes, which is about six miles to the north of Woolpit. Williams' mention of this uh, is in a footnote, which we didn't read, which is why it probably does not ring a bell. They both talk about the children having green skin and only eating beans and eventually assimilating with the rest of the community, with the brother dying sometime after being baptized. And unlike in the version we read, though, Ralph makes it sound as though only the sister lived long enough to tell their story. He doesn't mention a particular name for where they came from, and there's no certain luminous country that they could see from their home. There's also a slight difference in the two accounts concerning how the children claimed that they came to be in Woolpit. We read in William's version that they had been tending the flocks before hearing a loud noise, quote, such as we are now accustomed to hear at St. Edmund's when the bells are chiming. But they didn't otherwise know how they had wound up in Woolpit. Ralph, on the other hand, said the children reported that they had become disoriented while tending cattle and they got lost, and then they followed the sound of chiming bells through a long series of underground passages before emer emerging from a cave near Woolpit. So bells are involved in both of them in a slightly different way. One is sort of like they're hoping to get home, theoretically. Right. And the other is just that they the bells 
put them in some odd mental state that they went into a fugue state and traveled to Woolpit. Yes. Okay. The two accounts do diverge in what happened to the surviving sister of the pair as well. So we read in William's account that she married a man living in Lynn, but Ralph says that she became a servant in Lord Richard de Calne's house and lived there for many years. Not necessarily happily, though. He calls her, quote, very wanton and impudent. Regardless, William indicates that she was still living when he wrote his chronicle down. And there's been some discussion about exactly when in the 12th century this event might have happened. William of Newburgh lived from roughly 1136 to 1198. His version was probably written down toward the end of his life. Ralph's version made it into print after William's death sometime around 1220. So a lot of times we would think, okay, the later account is probably not quite as accurate. But even though Ralph's version was written down later, he actually lived a lot closer to Woolpit than William did. He said he had learned the story directly from Lord Richard de Calne himself, um, whereas William was hearing it all at least secondhand. And William notes that it was at harvest time during the reign of King Stephen, which was from 1135 to 1154. Ralph, on the other hand, says that it took place during the reign of his successor, Henry II, which was from 1154 to 1189. Author and archaeologist Brian Houghton points out that there's no mention of the children in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which documents English history up until Stephen's death and includes a number of other odd and wondrous stories. It's certainly possible that the green children aren't in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle because its authors didn't know about it or just didn't think it needed to be included. But if it's not included because it hadn't happened yet, that would put the time frame into Henry II's reign rather than Stephen's. And regarding William's notation of it being harvest time, the beans that they were eating would have been broad beans, which are more commonly known as fava beans in the United States. Those were picked around July and August, so that's the approximate time of year. And there is a lot to suggest that something really did happen. The two accounts seem to have been written completely independently of one another. And although William does a bit of protesting about how he knows that this story sounds unbelievable, both men wrote as though they were documenting a real event that actually happened. At the same time, when both men were writing, purportedly mystical, supernatural, and miraculous events were a lot more likely to be accepted at face value than they might be today. It was pretty much normal to write down something as odd as two green children crawling out of a wolf pit and just accepting the idea that something supernatural was at work uh, without really having to examine it further. The story of the green children of Woolpit definitely stuck around into the 13th century. And from there, it became a little more obscure outside the immediate area until the late 1500s, when the first printed edition of William's Historia Rerum Anglicarum came out. A new edition that came out in 1610 also included Ralph's version to the story as a compliment to William's. With that it started making more appearances in written works by other authors, who sometimes got understandably confused about which version was Ralph's and which which version was William's. I, in fact, got confused about that repeatedly when working on this podcast. (laughs) It's easy to do. Uh, Retellings of the story from the 15th century and beyond also were not usually quite as credulous as Ralph and William had been. William Camden, writing in his work Britannia in 1586, is one example. Here is his description, and I wish I could share all of the delightful spelling in his description with everyone. It's pretty great. It's pretty awesome. Wolpit 
is a market town, which meant merchant, and soundeth as much as the wool's pit. And if we may believe New Bridensis, who hath told as pretty and formal a tale of the place, as is that fable called the true narration of Lucian, namely how two little boys forsooth of green color and of satyr's kind, after they had made a long journey by passages underground, from out of another world, from the Antipodes and St. Martin's Land, came up here, of whom you would know more, repair to the author himself, where you will find such a matter as will make you laugh your fill if you have a laughing spleen. I feel like I definitely have a laughing spleen. I think so, yeah. <laughs> that we have... um made that prognosis. It's official. <laughs> I will call my family doctor. Uh, Newbergensis was a name for William of Newburgh. The, quote, true narration of Lucian is a second century satire by Lucian of Samosata, which details a trip to the moon that would rival our great moon hoax episode. There's a whole bit about men with dog's heads uh, uh, that fight from winged acorns and fleas as big as 12 elephants. Oh, that's terrifying. And warriors armed with radishes <laughs> flung from slings. I love all of this. This work is obviously not meant to be taken as fact, and Camden obviously does not take the green children seriously at all. From there, the story of the green children started to influence other more fanciful works. Francis Godwin's 1638 The Man in the Moon, or A Discourse of a Voyage Thither, which he called uh, a, quote, essay of fancy, talks about a novel disciplinary method employed by parents on the moon where they would send their unruly children down to earth and bring some earthling children back in their place. And in this whole story, he made reference to, quote, certain stories he had heard confirming this (laughs) idea was true. And those certain stories were William's Historia Rerum Anglicarum. I want to know what happened to the earthling kids that lived on the moon. Did they eventually get fed beans and turn green? There are so many questions. (laughs) You might say. I didn't read the whole thing. (laughs) The green children have continued to make appearances in fiction into the 20th century and beyond. Herbert Reed's novel, The Green Child, came out in 1934. The Green Children of Baños, set in Spain in 1887, was part of John Macklin's 1965 book, Strange Destinies. The Spanish setting is echoed in the 1997 10,000 Maniac song, Green Children, which starts an August day in the hills of Spain, a pair of children emerged from a cave. And of course, there are lots of other stories and books and TV episodes and the like that all draw from this as well. And it's not totally clear whether the green children are the inspiration for the basic idea of Martians as little green men. But they were definitely described as green, and people were also speculating that maybe they were aliens as early as the 16th century. And outside of the world of fiction, the green children also started being written about as folklore in the 19th century. In 1850, Thomas Kitely included bits of both William's and Ralph's accounts in his work, Fairy Mythology. This was the first time the story was available to people who did not read Latin, and since it was in a book by a folklorist called Fairy Mythology, a lot of people from this point assumed that story was inherently folkloric. Sometimes they're specifically fairies, such as in Catherine Briggs' Dictionary of Fairies, which came out in 1976. And there are also people who interpret them as forest spirits or personifications of nature. I feel like the whole, like, fairy myth right up through Tinkerbell is very informed by all of this. Oh, sure. 
Uh, about the same time as Kitely was documenting the story as folklore, the Green Children were also becoming more widely known to the general public. In 1875, a guidebook to East Anglia referenced the Green Children, and then other mentions and other travel guides followed. As you know, interesting points of interest and interesting tidbits about the place that you're visiting. A sign at Woolpit honoring the story was erected in 1977 as part of Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee. And today, the story is, like, there on the Village of Woolpit's webpage. (laughs) And, of course, there are also a lot of rational or not-so-rational explanations for what was really going on here. And we're going to dive into those possibilities after we first pause for a little sponsor break. Unsurprisingly, there are lots of hypotheses about who the green children were and where they came from. One connects them to the Babes in the Wood, which was first written down as a ballad in 1595. And the basic story of the Babes in the Wood is that a very greedy uncle was guardian to two young children, and he was hoping to steal their fortune, so he hired some men to take them into the woods and murder them. As so often happens in these kinds of stories, the men he hired didn't have the heart to do it and abandoned them instead. So in the story, they eventually starved. This folk tale is typically set in Wayland Wood, which is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers away from Woolpit. So people suggesting that the green children were really the babes in the wood just moved the location closer by, and also about 400 years earlier than the ballad's first written appearance. Yeah, that definitely doesn't mean the ballad didn't exist earlier, but like 400 years is a long time for a ballad to go without being written down or a story to go without being written down, at least by this point in history. So compounding the kind of far-fetchedness of this explanation is the go-to rationale for why they were green, which is chlorosis, otherwise known as green sickness. Now, while there are rare forms of anemia that can cause a person to have a kind of greenish pallor, along with the idea that people who are really nauseated are described as looking green sometimes, uh, green sickness is not that. (laughs) Green sickness was described in medical literature from the 16th to late 19th century. It was diagnosed almost exclusively in young women, and it was also called the virgin's disease. The symptoms included things like restlessness, irritability, fatigue, too little appetite, too much appetite, indigestion, headache, and an absence of menstrual periods. Treatments included bloodletting, marriage, always on a prescription pad, um, and medicines to bring on menstrual flow. To be clear, marriage really meant sex in this case, and there are some extremely suggestive ballads dating back to the 16th and 17th centuries about treatments, and we're using the air quotes there, for green sickness. There's actually a Sawbones episode about green sickness if you want to hear a whole lot more about this. It also does not really take a lot of Google effort to find these (laughs) extremely suggestive ballads ballads about how to treat green sickness. So, uh, obviously, they probably didn't have green sickness because that's not a real thing. Right. Uh, And also, those in in this sort of combination story of the green children and the babes in the wood, the folks who don't suggest that maybe they had chlorosis uh, often suggest that maybe the hired men did actually try to kill them using arsenic, and that they had survived, but the arsenic had turned their skin green. 
this is a weird conflation of sort of two different historical things. While arsenic has definitely been used to make green dyes, it was typically exposure to those dyes that made a person's skin turn green, not surviving an attempt to be poisoned with it. Right. Arsenic in itself does not carry that pigment into a person's person. I guess if you tried to murder someone with green dye... Which you could have done. Which you could have done. Then you might have green skin. You'll be so fashionable and deceased. Yeah. That would be a weird way to murder people. Yeah. That would make a great story for any of our writers out there. You just take that one and run with it. (laughs) Uh, The idea that the green children might have been aliens, which I love, goes all the way back to William Camden, who suggested that they were either satyrs, meaning wild men, or antipodians, meaning aliens. Robert Burton also made a passing reference to the idea that they may have come from another planet in Anatomy of Melancholy, which was published in 1621. So the aliens hypothesis has been around for a really long time, and it has persisted to the present. In a 1997 article in Analog, which is a science fiction magazine, Duncan Lunan asserted that they were from a human colony on an alien planet sent here through a malfunctioning transporter And this explanation also involves the Knights Templar in some way. This is one of the few things I didn't actually get to read for myself all the way through, so I'm relying on someone else's synopsis of it. But uh, interestingly, in a much more down-to-earth portion of this article, he also pieced together a family tree for Richard DeCount and claims that the surviving sister was baptized as Agnes and that the man she married was a royal official named Richard Barr. So that's a fascinating possibly totally legit historical fact in the context of this overall Aliens article with the Knights Templar involved. I wonder if that means that someone could trace their alien heritage all the way back to Agnes and you could know that you are part from another planet, which you really all are because we're all made of stardust to some degree. True story. We're all aliens. Uh, The most complete practical explanation for what might have happened came from Paul Harris in 1998. And that was published in Fortean Studies, which is an offshoot of Fortean Times. I actually used uh, a lot of writing from one of the editors there for our Devil's Footprints episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a magazine that's devoted to strange phenomena. And he suggests that all of this really happened in a 1173 in the reign of Henry II. In brief, Harris suggests that these were the children of Flemish immigrants and that their parents were killed at the Battle of Fornham in 1173. The St. Martin's land that the sister referred to was Fornham St. Martin, roughly 10 miles or 16 kilometers from Woolpit, so not that far away, uh, and also not far from the River Lark, so there would have been a river nearby. According to this theory, they escaped the battle, and then the two children fled into Thetford Forest and took refuge in Flint mines there before following the bells from Barry St. Edmunds to find their way out and make their way to Woolpit. So their unknown tongue and clothing were just Flemish, and their skin was greenish due to malnutrition due to this extended time of being abandoned and wandering in Flint mines. That all holds up. Uh, it all sounds like it fits so very well, but of course, there are a few problems. One, the Flemish people killed at Fornham were mercenaries hired to fight with English rebels against Henry II's forces. 
Mercenaries, generally as a rule, did not bring their children with them into battle. Uh, two, it seems unlikely that no one around Woolpit spoke Flemish or some other version of Dutch, at least enough to spot it as a known language rather than some unrecognizable tongue. Three, the river lark isn't really that big, and even to a child's eye, it's probably not quote, a very considerable river, so that descriptor does not really hold up. And four, this Fornham to Thetford to Bury St. Edmunds to Woolpit trek really goes way out of the way. It's actually a total of about 30 miles or 52 kilometers, the first leg of it going in nearly the direct opposite direction from Woolpit. Thetford is also way too far away from Bury St. Edmunds to hear the bells from there. Also on a, a lot more just immediate non-synchronization in the descriptions. Uh, that battle happened in October. So unless those two kids wandered for months and months and months before arriving in Woolpit, like there would not have been any fresh beans to harvest and feed right, to them. Because you'll remember that was what, June, July? I think July, August yeah, is when so those were generally harvested. That's nine-ish months, so nine to ten months. Including winter. Right. With two tiny children. Yeah. So malnourished tiny children. Yeah. So it's a mystery. Maybe uh, they made the devil's footprints. Maybe so. They <laughs> just took a little side trip, played a little prank. They time traveled. 700 years, yeah. maybe, or some other number of years, depending which account you read. Yeah. So uh, uh, pretty much all of the historical um, accounts, and then also a lot of the, his, like, farther back in the past works of fiction that we talked about today are all on the internet for free, and they will all be linked from our show notes to this episode if you just really want to go read either a colossally long history of the church in England as translated uh, in the 19th century, or if you just want to read some weird science fiction-esque stories about the moon written in the distant past. Like, that's all there. Who doesn't want to read those? I kind of do. The whole thing about the flying acorns and the dog face people and the right the specifically multiples number of elephants that the fleas were as big as. It's all yeah. But people are pretty much on their own if they want to go looking for the dirty ballads. Is that where we decided? <laughs> the dirty ballads are not linked in the okay. <laughs> One of them is definitely not safe for work. Yeah. Um, but I, so as I was trying to put together some thoughts about green sickness, I found a larger than I would expect number of just very credulous papers published in journals that were like, do you think green sickness could have been caused by malnutrition? No, I think green sickness probably was caused by misogyny. But <laughs> uh, but one of them, like, it, it, this, it started out seeming like they were genuinely asking whether there was some kind of organic mechanism at work. And then the conclusion was like, no, really, like people just got really into Hippocrates and started making these Hippocratic diagnoses. And that's why it suddenly enters this historical record at this time and leaves in this time. But it was through that one article that I found this particularly risque <laughs> ballad, which uh, I, you know, if you're an adult person with kind of a skewed sense of humor, it is always funny to me in a little in a little bit of a silly and almost borderline charming way to read sort of dirty writing and again I'm using the air quotes from really olden times because their choice of words is just very funny to today's ear. This that's is true and that's what too. makes it hilarious. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I don't know if you try to search for this yourself and you come up uh, with with no responses, just send us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. I will tell you where to find it. Tracy is going to peddle the dirty ballots. <laughs> Do you have listener mail that is not a dirty ballad? I sure do, and it's not dirty at all. Yay! Uh, Kyle sent us a note, and Kyle says, Ladies, I would like to start off by saying, this is my first time writing in, but I love your podcast and listen to it all the time at work. I'm a huge history buff and am always fascinated how the actions and events surrounding a single person can affect the entire world of billions. Three perfect examples of this were in your episode, Three Nuclear Close Calls. They were very interesting stories about how people in the Cold War prevented Armageddon through quick thinking and faith in their fellow humans. I'm sure I won't be the only person to write in about this, but news just came in a few hours ago confirming the death of Stanislav Petrov, one of the three people featured in the podcast. He passed away in May, according to multiple sources, but most people are just learning of it now. He was the perfect example of how the level-headed thinking of one individual can and did save the world as we know it today. I was born after the incident, which happened in 1983, but I can say with confidence that I and so many more would not be alive if not for his actions. And then uh, notes that his parents lived in a city that, that at the time probably would have been a target. The world owes Mr. Petrov and so many others like him a tremendous debt, and I am glad that now, if delayed, many mainstream media outlets are publishing stories about his deeds. Keep up the great work. Your podcasts keep me sane during some of my most tedious hours at work, so thanks for that. And then he included some links to stories about the death of Stanislav uh, Petrov. Thank you so much, Kyle. That news came uh, to the fore. It is true. It was like back in May that he mm-hmm. that he died. Um, but this news started to circulate while I was on vacation and Holly was at Salt Lake Comic Con. So it was like we were not really at our desks no. to just uh, spread the word on our social media or whatever. So I want to take the opportunity to note it in the show today. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to everyone else who's written us awesome notes about things mm-hmm. <laughs> or queries about where we have found things on our uh, on our show. So if you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook and Pinterest and Tumblr and Instagram, all of those at Missed in History. And if you come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, there's a searchable archive of all the episodes that have ever been on the show. There are show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done. There are lots of tags that we have that you can click on on our website and that will take you to lots of other episodes that are about that same subject. So there's a whole lot you can do if you come to mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 